welcome to this week's Armchair Trader podcast. On the podcast, we have Richard Shearer, the CEO of Tintra Group, and we're going to be talking um, a little bit more about um, the listed company, St. James House. So welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. So just to really kick off, can you give us um, a little bit of background on on Tintra and and um, secondly on St. James House and why Tintra decided to um, acquire a stake in St. James's House? Sure. Well, I think Tintra Group is deep in our core. We're a multifamily office that focuses on emerging market capital. We're somewhat of a hybrid, though. We're emerging market money is and we're going to get into this a little bit further on i'm sure but the way i often describe it if your name is smith and you're from london or jones and you're from connecticut um and you're a high net worth ultra net worth individual goldman jp morgan are very happy to welcome you into the fold if you're a high net worth individual and you're east african south asian southeast asian arab to a lesser degree there is an inherent hurdle that one needs to overcome and that's always been our business we've filled that divide um we think and act like a western business but with um we act in many ways like a cultural api between emerging market minds and emerging market needs and a phrase that i'm trying to get away from but first world thinking so that's our core business um and underneath that we run a bunch of regulated funds that allow us to execute on behalf of our clients we look after some ruling families, some sovereign funds, um, and some high-profile business families for those who provide discretion. We have a reasonably big um, AUM, um, but a, a, a rather large AUA, Assets Under Advisory, which is much more the nature of a family office. So, yeah, so we act as an interface between emerging world, generally ultra-wealth rather than high-wealth, and their their cross-border needs um in a regular family office sense and so there they there you are with this multi-family office and uh you've got something like saint james house um which um looking at it on the surface it's um london listed company seems to have quite a few different assets and um, areas of specialty one of which is emerging markets finance what was it that that really attracted you to that over the a phrase that I've been using a lot recently is over the last decade, trade investment has become borderless, has become frictionless. The ability to pay for that investment and trade hasn't. I'll start with an example. Tintra is the payments provider for Huawei out of West Africa, which whilst that's very flattering, a Huawei shouldn't need a Tintra, all things being equal. Um, and that evidences a lot of this gap. And it's, it's family office-related space. It's buying a hotel for the family in New York that are based in Mombasa, for example, or in, in Oman or wherever it might be. Um, but it's also much more than that. It's being able to just execute trade. And we've found this become harder and harder and harder over the last 10 years, certainly over the last five. Now, we've acted with very familiar investment banks. We have clients at Goldman, clients at JP Morgan, clients at HSBC, all of the regular faces. But then there's some services that you just can't get provided through traditional banking because there is this inherent prejudice. And 
prejudice is a strong word, but it's but it's actually what it is. And it's there's this assumption based on the fact that if um, your name is Stuart and you live in the UK, we understand as a bank whether you're a good guy or a bad guy, someone we want to do business with or somebody that we don't. We, HSBC, whoever it may be, can't tell, can't make that distinction if you're in Kenya, if you're in Oman, if you're in um, an emerging market. And therefore, what happens is it becomes, well, that jurisdiction is bad, which is patently an incorrect assumption. Um, so we end up using through our business and our, um, and our capital bases in highly regulated environments. And because of the UBO, the beneficial owners of those funds are, fill into the, fall into the bucket that I just described, you have issue. So then you, we end up, end up having to work alongside um, financial organizations where you can still speak to a human being and have a discussion and say, okay, well, this is what this is. This is what it really is. This is what it looks like. And this is why we believe that this is an onboardable client. So we spent more and more of our lives as a business having those discussions. And we got to the point where we thought we could probably do this better ourselves than anybody else is doing it. Um, and so we were looking for a target um, where we could assimilate and become truly point to point. You know, we've always, we've, at Tinker, we've always prided ourselves on the fact we are point to point you're not giving us your money as a family office and we're giving it to someone who oh they, they've got some good strategies let's deploy it with them it's us when it goes right it's us when it goes wrong it's us and you can trust us and we're full spectrum but that last piece has never used to exist and in the last two or three years it has so to to continue to be full spectrum we had to add that last piece on um, which borders to SJH, and in particular its um, payments business, of which we had been a client of for a number of years. Right, I've got you. I've got you. It, it's it's surprising in a way because you, you do come across a lot of like Islamic banks, for example, um, specialist Islamic banks and finance houses in places like Switzerland. Um, there are guys down in, in places like Miami who are servicing the sort of South American wealth market. Um, and, and then you hear about sort of French banks who have been active in the trade finance space who are, who I accept are now have withdrawn from that space now. Um, it gives an impression as you sit here in London of, wow, there's lots of institutions out there already doing this. But what you're saying is that that's actually not the case. And if, if you're an ultra wealthy family in somewhere like East Africa, it can actually be a real obstacle. Quite right. There, there are other, well, there's two parts to, to the question there. One of it is banking and e-money space differentials. Um, and two is recognized jurisdictions and being able to build genuine agnostic banking rails um so you may well find let's like say out of miami there will be a latin focused bank um that will deal exclusively with two jurisdictions ecuador and colombia let, let, let's say i can think of a good example um and that goes back to my earlier point which is 
banks find risk in the unknown. So that bank in Miami will be owned by an Ecuadorian who understands what a good Ecuadorian, a bad Ecuadorian looks like. So they become very, very specialized. Um, and you'll get a um, Arab bank in London, which will be very, very specialized, which will only onboard people from their home jurisdiction. Generally, it's a branch license where the, where the actual action is happening back home. Um, so it, it, what it is, is uh, and there's, there's Nigerian banks in London operating the same thing, um, but it's not genuinely servicing the full spectrum of need. It's very specific, very narrow. And then on top of that, or maybe as an extension to that, what you find is it's not just about interfacing with First Bank of Nigeria in London. It's then interfacing onwards um, and providing the, um, the proper banking platform for them to be able to then deploy that money into a HSBC account when it tracks back all of a sudden your counterpart is not very happy with the way that it was dealt with. So it's actually trying to apply, which isn't being done, Western banking rigor to emerging markets rather than not saying that other institutions are turning a blind eye to it, but they're very narrowly focused and they understand it on the micro, but not on the macro. This is something where, I mean, can you give me some, some example in terms of the actual sort of bread and butter service that, that, that um, you're going to be offering through this? Uh, what sort of what sort of actual you know, end products and services um, wealthy individuals in this region will be able to get access to that maybe they haven't been able to get access to previously? Well, I think I think I can answer that question more sector specifically rather than about, about our own intentions, which are essentially one and the same thing. But what you're finding right now is emerging markets are we need to redefine the phrase, first of all, because they've emerged for the most part. You know, these are buoyant economies um, doing very well. They've come out the backside of COVID in a much better way because they're much less debt fueled. Um, they are here and they don't feel to themselves to be emerging. They're very sophisticated, um, very technologically f uh, front foot forward. And what they're doing is coming up, is butting up against, their, their, their argument is we're just trying to do business that makes sense to us. Now, and then what they do, they say, okay, we've got a client that, um, or we are a family office, or we have a client, or we're a corporate that generates our money in local currency, and we need to buy goods and services in dollars, um, or sterling, or euros, whatever it may be. Then, so, But what they're coming up against is the amount of questions they're being asked to understand those flows of capital make no sense in their jurisdiction. So the service offering doesn't change. The service offering is providing banking, payment structuring, um, merchant acquiring services um, for credit cards and various other trade activities, and also funds on account for family office high net worth clients. It, the service offering doesn't change. What changes is the cultural API. You know, it's understanding rather than saying the guy in Mombasa, well, we can't onboard you because you don't have, because uh, you only have a PO box number. We don't accept PO box numbers. It's a very trivial example, but it's one that that comes up a lot, and, and and very often in a country, it's well, we only have PO box numbers here. In the UK, would infer that you were probably up to no good. 
you know, in other countries, it doesn't. So it's not necessarily the service offering changes, but it's making, a word that I use a lot is making it frictionless. You know, as we move faster and faster through, in, in the world of things are instant and I could send money to you in a, in a split second from my telephone, you can't do that in the way, as a, as a business, you can do it as well. You can't do that cross-border other than between Europe and the States and maybe Australia, you know? So it's the service to pointedly answer your question. The service offering doesn't particularly innovate. It's the way that the client fronts the business that innovates. And that's the gap. And I guess we, we sort of sit here in the UK um, or you know, people in the US take a lot of these services for granted. And we just expect that, um, those kinds of service should be freely accessible in in a lot of other countries in the world, uh, but in fact they're not. And even when you have a lot of money, you still can't get services that, in some respects, we just take as routine in the UK. This tracks back into that not understanding the difference, the not understanding the market, and what you have um, in the UK, for example, you, if you're a good client in from a good place in and i'm using air quotes that you can't see but um a good jurisdiction being one that's recognized the uk the us the continental europe and you're a good client you're well known there's no that you can you're referenceable and all of those things you go to barclays you go to hsbc now if you're a bad client from a bad place nobody should want you if you're a less value, and it's not good and bad in terms of doing good and doing bad, it's a low value client, for example, or a client that doesn't have the right um, KYC deck, or is a low value client for a bank. In the UK, you end up in a Revolut or a Monzo or where those things are moving. It's a little bit technologically um, driven, but it's also compliance driven. Nobody is servicing properly the good guys from air quotes, bad places. Now, and that's the, the, the way that the gap operates there is that the bank, the, the, the compliance infrastructure in, in, in Western trade can't differentiate between the guy with a billion dollars or the guy with a small little personal business who he wouldn't onboard for reasons that are completely correct but they can't often tell the difference between that guy and the guy they should onboard because of the cultural differences that i mentioned or, or just a bias frankly um so that's why it becomes very difficult for these people to do quality business because they get tarred with the brush of of the jurisdiction unfairly and you mentioned earlier on that this was something that has actually got harder, which is which is kind of amazing to think about <laughs> because we're living in the world of, you know, um, cryptocurrencies and digital banking. Um, if anything, you know, the layman would expect this should have got easier. Is is what what's been the driver here? Has it been um, you know the post sort of war on terror environment where you have you know the, the the restrictions on who banks can deal with have come in successively over over the last 20 years and now it's really really tough um for them to onboard new clients even if they are extremely wealthy this you're quite right this is there's a duality there the the, the start of it really was 9 11 and, and the war on terror 
And by the way, I can sound like I'm railing against compliance. I'm absolutely not. What I what I rail against and what I'm quite passionate about is understanding the true risks and making a value judgment based on facts, not on biased assumptions. You know, uh, properly done compliance keeps us all safe and makes the world a better place. It's just when it's heavy handedly dispersed um, in a way that in a, in a manner that doesn't um, necessarily do the job it's tasked to do. So it, this did start. 9-11 was where it was where the, the sort of the gates, unf- gates opened. And then there's been an incremental creep. Um, which was driven again by the next big step was post uh, financial crisis. And it then became driven as much as anything else about needs for government government revenue um, and wanting to understand the UBO. Years ago, they'd want to know who the directors and the shareholders were. Then between 9-11 and the, and the end of the financial crisis in 2011, 2012, it became, we want to know who the UBO is. We don't, we don't care that the T-boy in your office, he's the director. We want to know whose money this really is. And the that that's that UBO drive is war on terror, is safety and security. But as much as anything else, it's about it's about tax dollars or tax pounds. Um so that's not going away. Um and then when it comes to crypto, crypto is if you, there's an element, there's an argument, if crypto's done properly, it's safer than money because you've got the chain and you can see where it's been um, and you can blockchain it back. Banks see it as an existential threat, so they're not particularly keen on it and the, it gets tarred with the, we can't make it compliant. And look, can it be used for illicit things? Of course it can. Sinister people will always find a way to do things that they want to do illicitly. Um but is there a way for it to be understood and for it to be even safer than fiat currency? I believe so, yes. Um, so the relentless march is driven, it was commenced really with the war on terror, but then exponentially ramped up um, post-financial crisis and um, the need for tax dollars and stopping people having somewhere to hide, frankly. When I, I used to cover private banking when I was working at FT many years ago, um, quite a lot. And um, the, the impression I got from the private banks serving emerging markets, of which there were a lot, was that primarily they were offering sort of safekeeping of assets and asset management were really the, the, the main thrusts. There was a lot of talk about relationship management and that they could do lots of other things for the client. But but the core of it all was just custody and asset management. Um, but you're, you're, it sounds here like you're talking about um, more about just being able to move money around without it hitting major obstacles. I think it's both of those things. And I think it's a generational shift. The emerging market money that was... 20, 30 years ago, which was the grandfather, has now been is now in lots of cases being driven by the grandson of, 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 of the money, um, for one of a better way of describing it. And very often they are now Western educated, forward thinking, they're, they're their own cultural API that we that we say that we are. So it's gone from being we just want to have money outside of our jurisdictions. In the emerging world, if you are a very wealthy person, you can't not be politically exposed. 
Mm. If you've got three billion dollars in a ten billion dollar economy, you're you're politically exposed. And then the risk is always then you've got to take a side, which is great when your guy is in. But then when your guy is out, you you become um, a target for persecution because it's your money that can help the other guy get back in again. So very often what happened was we just want as an emerging market family to get capital out of our home jurisdiction. We don't care if it makes any money or not, because we just want to make sure it can't be taken off us when our guy goes out of power. Now, that's evolved generationally um, as emerging markets have emerged and become more sophisticated and said, oh, hang on a minute, we need to be doing something with this. We need to be protecting the generational wealth. And and also, since the rough times of the financial crisis, particularly if you look at, if you look at golf money, it used to be trophy asset driven. You know, we want something that we can tell our friends about and we don't really mind if it only makes us a point a year. Now that's gone. There's very few people buying things purely on trophy, uh, purely as a trophy these days. It needs to make sense. It needs to be um, beating inflation, fulfilling a, a fulfilling a family strategy. So those things have changed a lot. So in terms of what are we going to be doing going forward, particularly as it relates to SJH, it's I think on the Tintra side it remains the PB type things that you, you described. Um, from your past and that that absolutely remains but there's now an additional piece to it that i've just described you, you've also you've mentioned that there's a um, sort of digital or technology component to this as well i mean this is something that um has interested me in the past in and probably at a much lower level but there's been a lot of talk um in the banking market about using technology to um change the way banking is carried out in emerging markets and and we're seeing a massive revolution in in africa for example where um the 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 countries have moved from just sort of standard paper-based banking to everyone banking on the mobile phone and it's all gone very digital very quickly and in some cases faster than it has in in some european countries i'm in fact you know, even five or six years ago, there were some African countries that were well ahead of the curve when compared with European countries in terms of digital banking services and and microfinance. So, so that's really that's really changed the game in in some emerging markets. Now, we're obviously talking here about sort of the other end of the scale, the wealthy guys as well. Do you do? You, can you talk a little bit about what the digital role is going to be there? Sure. Um, well, I think first of all, to address the first part of, of what you were saying there, I think what the emerging markets benefited from was not having a hundred years of legacy banking. You know, they went from a lot, particularly at the low level, for, uh, for one of a, a, um, a better way of describing it. These were people that before didn't have banks. They didn't. They, they were. It was cash based. Um, and, it, and it was very parochial. So they benefited in many cases in the emerging world from not having um, a view of legacy banking and not having to change one thing into the other. And that was why, the, in my view, that was why the adoption rate was so fast in these places as opposed to um, the UK, for example, where you've got a bunch of people hanging on to what they've already got, saying, well, you know what, this basically does the job. And it might be innovative, but better the devil you know than the devil you don't, and let's stay with what we've got. We're in Nigeria, for example. It was the first bank account these people were ever allowed. They could go onto a cell phone, take a picture of their ID with their face, and they've got a bank. 
they where before got walking into the front door of a legacy bank was the reserve of co- mid-level corporates and up so that was where that sort of that tinder was came from it, it came from that source now what's our tech piece and and how we tech forward on this now speaking candidly i, I don't think um our innovation in tech again it's a bit like the payments piece we're innovating how we do it not what we're doing now i think particularly in fx one of the things we want to understand um and and achieve and we're working through it now is the pairing of exotic currencies as they've referred to with main currencies in a way that's instant and liquid so you've got a client trading out of if you keep using Africa as examples out of Kenya right now their liquidity is minimal their FX trades generally need to be through USD if they want big liquidity um, this is not true of a private banking situation where someone's trying to buy a hotel in New York but in terms of trying to run the business that allows them to buy the hotel in New York you know it's providing those direct currency pairings that happen in real time that happen on an app or on a web-based platform that allow that, that level the playing field frankly you know things that seem very normal to a western ear are not there's a whole range of um of frictions in between for someone operating in those even multinationals operating in those markets have a whole range of friction points in the middle um through the tech um, and through the FX piece, that we can see a route to leveling out. And we, I mean, we've been talking generically about um, emerging markets. We've mentioned the Gulf. We've mentioned Africa. We've mentioned South America. Do you have any specific regional? Do you anticipate having any specific regional biases um, with this, or do, you, or is it going to be pretty much a global offering? So um, our five-year strategy um is a global offering however tintra brings with it part of the part of our benefit matrix here is we do understand these markets you know otherwise we're kind of other people are trying to do this and not failing but maybe not being quite as efficient as they can be our part of our usp is we get it and we understand of course we don't understand every jurisdiction in the world the gulf we understand intimately um western east africa we understand pretty intimately um southeast asia we understand well but these are big these are big statements um so what we want to do we're going to focus primarily on on the gulf and on sub-saharan africa nigeria ghana and kenya first of all um these are jurisdictions where we have large client base we understand them intimately because ultimately it's all well and good talking about our oh, compliance is difficult duh, 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 duh. It, and it is but it's difficult for a reason because there is risk you know, so we it's proving this model and proving to the markets that we know what we're talking about. And so, okay, look, we can operate in these jurisdictions in a way that is risk off because we know how to mitigate those risk points. We do know what a good guy from a bad guy looks like in a perceived bad place. So for us, it's sticking with familiar territory. Um, we have um, applied for a bank license in Qatar. Um, a full banking license, um, which, of course, as you'll be very aware, 
is not something that happens in five minutes, but we, we've commenced the process, um, which will act as a pivot to service the Gulf. Um, and we've developed um, two or three, I believe, two very strong um, partnership agreements, which are close to fulfillment um, in West Africa to act as pivots there for our compliance piece. So we will prove concept in territories that we know. We will prove concept to ourselves, but also prove concept to the markets where there, there is going to be those inherent fears and prejudices. And we very much look forward to um, to proving our point, I guess is, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and then from there, we've got a three-year and a five-year roadmap that includes uh, moving into Southeast Asia, which we also know well, and then moving into Latin as a, via the US very much later. Um, but I, I think I think in the Western Hemisphere there will always be others doing it better than us. I would to speak honestly. And are you able to um, give us any idea of the sort of growth prospects for this market? I mean, it, it, it's like everything else. There's a lot more sort of wealthy individuals coming out of of the emerging world now. Um, we know that um, you know Africa is uh, is a very young continent. It's a very resource rich continent. Um, what what, are, what what sort of underpins the growth story here? Have you done any work on on how you expect um, the company to benefit in that respect? Done a lot of work on it, and being in being in a um, public environment we're somewhat limited to what we can say publicly about it without it being disclosed, which sure. goes against my natural grain. Um, <laughs> I find it pretty exciting as well. But if you look at just the markets that we identify, and it's not just about, it's high net worth, but it's corporate flows. And if you look at the flows on any given day between Ghana and the UK, Nigeria and the UK, which have their own liquidity issues, but also Qatar and the UK or um Kuwait and the UK these markets are multi-billion dollars a day you know so to achieve numbers and hit targets we already through Tintra I'll give you a very specific example already through Tintra from in Nigeria through existing clients that it's two families clients of ours that own big trading businesses and another that's a public entity in Nigeria we move something like two hundred million dollars a month for them into their through their trading activity. Um, one of them is commodities. Another one is uh, grains and, and, and staple foods, um, and that is scalable up to. But we have we have visibility on being able to get to ten billion dollars a month in, in flows of capital um, over a two year horizon. Um, when you start to look at those numbers, when you, particularly when you're operating in a space where you can charge small basis points on spread, rather than it being $25 for a swift transfer from Barclays to Chase Manhattan, it's $25 of which you're paying to swift $5. The model that we're building here, that we're already existingly doing inside Tintra old business, let's call it, um, is a business where you can charge basis points on volume because nobody else can do the job that they need doing, you know? So for us, when you look at the Revoluts, when you look at 
a, a four billion valuation where their average cost, uh, their average value per customer per year is sixteen pounds and ten pence. Um, they're a B two C business and they've got scale at two million people. We will never have two million people. Our goal, our target is to have the top two hundred families and corporates in any jurisdiction. That mitigates the risk. You know, they're publicly known, they may be publicly traded, they're high profile. So we mitigate that compliance risk in large part by that. Um, but if each one of those customers is, is a customer that has a £50,000 a year value, it's, it, it's an inverse model to other um, digital bank service providers. And I know you're, I mean, you've mentioned already, there's, there's not actually, um, there's not a lot you can talk about in terms of future projections or future plans for the company. Um, as as, I, as we realize you're, you're listed um, in the UK um, under SJH. Um, is there anything you can tell tell us about future plans or future strategy? Well, I think I'm, as a, in my capacity as a director of SDH, which is the financial division of SJH, um, we are in pretty advanced discussions with an acquisition target there where um, one of the things I think is missing in the e-money space is an, an e-money license is only as strong as its banking partner. Now, you can have all of these philosophical, um, idealistic goals that we have, but if your banking partner doesn't share those philosophies, then you've got a weakness in the chain. You're always going to end up with the same problem. Um, so we've taken a view at SDH um, that we need to have direct access to all of these different providers. So we are in the process of negotiating terms to acquire um, a vehicle that has direct access to MasterCard, Visa, all of these, all of the things that Swift to take out that piece from the middle where one, it's a risk of being able to um, being able to execute from a partner that doesn't share your philosophy. Um, but two, it's paying away fees constantly because you've got layers in the middle that all need to um, keep their own respective lights on. So our strategy overarching is one of is one of growth rather than acquisition, um, but to get from where we are to where we want to be, we've, we've, we've got a step in the middle that I just described that probably shortens that curve by two years. So SDH very strongly is um, focused on, we think we've got a strong first mover advantage in what we're trying to do, um, which is embedded further by Tintra's very genuine understanding of these markets which we, others would find it hard to we've been doing this for a long time others will find it hard to get to um but we could easily burn through that first mover advantage by fiddling around trying to get the right relationships for two years and end up neutralizing ourselves so whilst our strategy is one of uh, is one of um organic growth we felt at sdh that we needed to have one acquisition in the first piece to ensure that our first mover advantage doesn't get neutralized. That sounds really interesting indeed. 
No, well, thank you very much indeed for coming on the podcast. That's been really interesting. And um, no, we'll look forward to um, see what's happening with the company in the very near future. I appreciate there's there's other stuff going on that you're not able to discuss at the moment. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to, um, as these things start to unfold and as, and as I'm able to, um, I'd love to come back and chat through it with you. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Armchair Trader podcast. To get uh, up-to-date commentary on what's happening in the share markets, both in Europe and North America, and our views on some of the emerging investment stories in the small cap space, make sure you check out www.thearmchairtrader.com and sign up to our free daily newsletter.